Welcome to Counterpoint Conversations, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon as part of the Counterpoint Women in Government series. Counterpoint will build a picture of the participation of women in government and uncover how the diversity of views affects its outcomes. How does having more women in senior leadership positions actually change the way policy is developed? And does it fulfill its goal to achieve better quality outputs? This podcast series will comprise women from the private sector engaging with their government counterpoints to explore how their experiences differ and to determine how we can draw on the best practices from each area. Counterpoint conversations will analyze the themes surrounding the role women play in government and the broader workforce and the structural and cultural factors that impact how they're supported during their career progression. From defense and intelligence to science and business, we'll speak with some of the women in our government and private sector ranks who are achieving incredible things. Get ready to be informed and engaged with CounterPoint Conversations by Verizon. Welcome to the final episode of the CounterPoint Conversation podcast series, Diversity for Success on the Battlefield. This episode, we'll be discussing what are the challenges ahead in shaping the defence force of the future? What are the skills required from a technical perspective? What do the cultural settings look like? And how do we look at diversity when we're talking about strategy and planning? Today joining us is Jonathan Sadlier. Jonathan is currently the Chief Strategy Officer at CEA Technologies, a world-leading Australian-owned firm that specialises in the design, development and manufacture of advanced radar and communication technologies. Jonathan has had a wide-ranging career in the Australian Navy and his final role was as Chief of Staff, Navy Strategic Command, and he remains a commander in the RAN Reserves. Rob LaBusk is well known to CounterPoint listeners. He is the Regional Vice President, Asia Pacific, for Verizon Enterprise Solutions, and he has responsibility for delivering the digital transformation journey of the company's enterprise and government customers across the region. Rob started his career with Verizon in 2001 and has been many years living and working throughout the Asia Pacific region. Please join me in welcoming both Jonathan and Rob. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Jonathan, can I start with you and just ask if you could give us an overview of your career and your current role? It really does span decades and will be a really great sort of vantage point for how you're looking at the way the skills and people and the development of our our resourcing has changed over those decades. Yeah, thanks. I guess it's always a bit confronting when people remind you that it spans decades. It doesn't feel that way, but fair enough. And um, it does. And when I do reflect back on it, think how much has changed and and how quickly some of that changed. I think if we're talking about myself, I have a couple different lenses. One is during my time as a warfare officer in the Navy, eventually commanding warships and, and, and actual squadrons in various scenarios, and then moving on into the defense sector and taking some of those skills forward, but putting a more of a commercial slant on them. And I guess... Uh, if I had to characterize a rearview lens on it, and we're keeping in the context of the importance of diversity and the impact that diversity has, and I, I think when I hear the word diversity, as you said, it's got many definitions. 
And I wouldn't characterize it as just gender diversity. It's age diversity. It's cultural diversity. It's just all the pits and pieces that fit into that and how important they are. If I reflect on my time in the Navy, I was lucky enough to be one of the first intakes in the Canadian Navy initially that had women warfare officers. So I've never known anything different except to serve with females throughout my career. But I think if I look back on it, I'd have to say that we've gone over the years from sort of 1986 through to now 2022, we went through an environment where we had to. So we got told as organizations that we were going to have to become more diverse. It wasn't a choice. The Navy was not left a choice. It was told by other right purple seeking thinking people that it had to change. And then over time, that became something where you wanted to change. And then I think we're now at the point, and I think this discussion in parts indicative of it, where we need to embrace diversity. We need to change if we're going to continue to be competitive, both on the battlefield or within the planning context, which I think is probably more relevant in the battlefield conversation itself, and then more importantly, in industry. And I'll just wind that up by saying, if you look at World War One, there's a classic example of what happens when you don't have the right level of diversity, both within your politics, within your industry, and within your defense leadership. You end up in a stagnated level of groupthink that never, ever gets to the end state that it needs to. So I think it's less about why it's important. I think we know why it's important. It's about how do we get there. Rob, can I bring you in there? Because a lot of the things that Jonathan was saying is that I think you would see also in the world that you are, this isn't just about doing the right thing and virtue signaling. It's about this is important to future-proof any organization that it does protect it from itself. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, thanks, Corey. I mean, the first thing is that certainly from a Verizon perspective, we, you know, we think of this idea of the battlefield as it's the corporate battlefield. You know, how do we remain competitive and how do we continue to prosecute our strategy in the context of our industry? And I think it's interesting, if you look pre-pandemic, the overarching meta trend was really around frictionless global trade. How do you scale so that you can provide service and be able to deliver capability around the world for your customers or into those markets that you want to target. And what organizations arrived at very quickly when they started to think about that dynamic was that in order to address that challenge, you simply need everyone on the field. So you need not only diversity of thought, you need to open up opportunity for employment in a different way comparative to perhaps what you had done previously And that manifested in things like changes in policy around helping working mothers return to the workforce, creating more flexibility around working hours and working models and employment models so that you could increase that overall participation in the workforce to address that global frictionless sort of trading environment. Because all of a sudden you had competitors all over the world that had the ability to access your market, access your customer base and make inroads there. The pandemic came along and changed a lot of that, and we saw very quickly the focus shift, but the outcome remained the same. And what I mean by that is the focus shifted very much to uh, the meta trends of being connected all the time. I've said before that the pandemic was really a dress rehearsal for the next 10 years from a technology perspective. So it's connection all the time with data everywhere, and it's this rapid drive to automation. 
And when you think about what you require to be successful in those aspects, again, you need that diversity of thinking. You need diversity of your employee base. You need to create opportunities for different people to access the workforce because you need those different skill sets, those different orientations, and you need to be combating things uh, like Jonathan mentioned, you know, groupthink, unconscious bias, these things that have traditionally guided decisions in what was relatively a static trading environment that no longer hold up and are no longer relevant in one that is changing as rapidly as the environment that we're in now. A question for both of you, all of those things that you've talked about, Rob, and yourself, Jonathan, we're now looking at a situation where AUKUS was a good example of the fact that there are gaps in terms of when there'll be actual sort of delivery of subs as an example, and that virtual environment will become increasingly important. So when you're talking about virtual, you're talking about the way that we create those environments that they might have been in person are now virtually, and we've, we know when we talk about unconscious bias, you're talking about code, and do you have any thoughts on how the way of really thinking broadly about how we build environments for training purposes will change? Is, is there a lot of thought going into this? I'll touch on it, but I suspect Rob might be a little bit better place to talk to it. I can talk to it from, I think it's interesting when I reflect on, and I might see it through a slightly different lens, where everybody is wanting to embrace, you know, AI, quantum, robotics, 5G, advanced manufacturing, all those words that we, we like to throw around. But fundamentally, we also need to have the right mechanisms in place to ensure that whilst we're progressing down those paths, we're doing it in an environment that actually understands what the end state they're trying to achieve is. I think that if I talk to defense industry and how it interacts with defense on this, it's actually quite a challenging space. And I'll divert from the question a little bit, but um, maybe Rob will bring it all back on track. But we can be the most advanced organization on the planet, and we can stack our company with as many young STEM-focused people as possible with great ideas. But fundamentally, what we need to be addressing is coming up against an older guard that doesn't understand how it's going to be implemented. And what I mean by that is, is that they are continually trying to provide specific pigeonholed outcomes that don't actually allow the growth and the risk-taking that's required in an agile outcome or in a spiral level of development to get and really use those capabilities. So I think that there is a willingness across all sectors of defense, and I think there's a willingness within the heads of the various capabilities within defense to embrace all of it. It does come up against a lot of bureaucratic inertia, though, once you start to figure out how you're going to get the best use of it going forward, because it's very difficult to characterize an acquisition that you don't actually have in your hands yet. It doesn't exist. It's aspirational. It needs to be developed. It is literally going to be an agile thing that is going to be developed over time to achieve an outcome. That is a very new way for governments and bureaucracies to manage the bringing in of new ideas and new capabilities. I think that's an excellent point, Rob. Your thoughts is agility in the way that we look at problem solving with technology. We don't necessarily know what the end game looks like. It, all those points are really important. Absolutely. And Corey, and to what Jonathan said, you know, this idea of building digital replicants for training purposes, for example, it's not always being done correctly or in the right way at the moment. And so what you manifest in a virtual environment 
in some cases varies and differs significantly comparative to what you get from the physical world. And so you then need to recalibrate and change. A good simple example of that is the mining company that set about to have autonomous trucks roll around the mine site. It was all modelled virtually. It seemed like a great idea. It's Operationally, it functions very well. Um, but what they didn't pick up was the trucks were so perfect that they rolled down the precise same portion of the road and, as a consequence, dug huge big divots in the road from their wheel tracks, which then increased wear and tear on the vehicles and then required them to make changes to the algorithms and the software so that the trucks had varied their pathway and were able to increase the efficacy of the mine site and lower the amount of maintenance on the machines as well. So some things you just can't grip up on and understand until you test them in the real world. But from a purely technology perspective, you know, what do we know? We know two things. We know that in the way that some algos are written for AI engines, there are examples of both conscious and unconscious bias written into that. And they can be bias in the types of decision-making that's put into the core engine, or it can be, in some cases, gender bias or other aspects. And so being very attuned to that in that testing process and making sure that you've got people that are on the lookout for it, are understanding how it presents and manifests because it's not always obvious. And catching that in those testing phases is very important. I think the other aspect that we know for sure is that, again, from a non-military perspective, we just think about the industry applications of things like autonomous vehicles, remote controlled AI or partially autonomous vehicles in any operational environment. Well, these are gender neutral roles. You know, to control these things no longer requires a particular set of physical attributes. And so it opens up an opportunity and a capability and opens up for organizations a far broader palette of the workforce that can help you to achieve those goals and maintain that technology or that capability as well. So I think on the one hand, it's very exciting because these sorts of new technologies give organizations the opportunity to use their human capital and deploy their employee base in very different ways to the way that they would have in the past, in a very agile manner, in a very inclusive manner, reaping all the benefits thereof of that diversity of thinking and diversity of input, problem solving and all those other things that Jonathan mentioned. And at the same time, there needs to be a warning bell rung for ideation and development done just in something like a digital twin or just in a virtual environment without properly road testing it in its physical application to understand whether the code and the software that you're using to drive those initiatives is actually achieving what you set out to in the first place. I'm glad Rob raised that issue around what happens when you stick to a very sort of straightforward design process that doesn't take into consideration all the impacts, which frankly is easy to say in hindsight. It's very difficult in practice. And I think we, we all acknowledge that. And I don't say any of it cynically. But when you talk about inclusion and diversity, I think we do lose sight a little bit of those people that have been involved in certain professions, certain organizations for an extended period of time and often don't even know why or how they know certain things. And we've seen time and time again over the years, those people being marginalized to a degree because there's new technology. And as a result, you can end up in a situation where instead of getting the best out of all the new, by leveraging some of the older, wiser outcomes that are sitting around it, you can get some very interesting and actually quite unfortunate outcomes. And I think the point I'm, I'm making there is, is that 
we often look at inclusivity and uh, diversity looking down and across at gender, at different cultures, and at the young. And I think that's critical. I'm not debating that at all. But I think when we do that and when we, as we go through things like gamification and virtual reality, things along those lines, if you're designing something that's going to be a repetitive process, say, for example, a repetitive manufacturing process or things along those lines, that is something that's quite different than trying to design and work in an environment where it's ever-changing. So a battlefield, regardless of whether it's an industry or whether it's an actual literal battlefield, are constantly changing environments. And the way you adapt to those environments is in part through experience. And I think as we move forward, it's critical that we continue to strive to find the balance on how we bring in experience and meld that quietly and carefully across things like virtuality, gamification, so that we end up in a situation where we are still managing to manage the unpredictable, the known unknowns, and even the, the unknown knowns as we go through that process. And I, I, I do worry at times that we have a tendency to lose sight of that as we move forward. That experience that can spot the potential of unintended consequences without even thinking about it. It's just experience will tell you that adds a layer that you can't exclude from this. I completely hear what you're saying in terms of the new and the young and diversity, but without some sacrificing experience as part of that and more traditional ways of doing things. You mentioned right at the start that you started your career in Canada. Obviously, Canada, Australia, US, UK, great friends. We talked a lot about sharing of technology. When it comes to culture and experience and insight, as we're moving through this rapid change in skills requirements, is there a real opportunity to draw on our allies when it comes to building out some of that application of experience to certain emerging fields? I think I'd say the answer to that should always be yes. But I would argue that we need to also be looking less towards our allies who have a tendency to think and react and move similar ways, um, albeit subtly nuanced against their different national cultures, but looking more at those that are very much unlike us and trying to understand better what it is that makes them work and what it is that makes them not work as they go forward. I don't think there's anything new that I can provide in terms of insight there. I think that's fairly well understood, but I can't stress enough in terms of strategy and planning, the importance of understanding and getting as many inputs as you possibly can throughout the planning process to ensure that you mitigate as many of the unknowns as you possibly can when you finally try to take things to market or put something in the field or engage in in some level of uh, strategic interaction. You've mentioned planning a few times, and I think that's a a bit of a light bulb moment. Otherwise, it's just a group think of a different kind if you're not really looking more broadly at where are you taking some of those inputs from. Rob, did you want to add something there? Oh, I think in, you know, in the corporate context, when you think about strategy and planning, more often than not, they're synonyms for risk. And as Jonathan mentioned, I mean, we, we think about it very much as when you accept that it's not a yes or a no answer, then it's shades, a million different shades of grey that are constantly changing. They're changing relative to your position in whatever that circumstance or environment is, you know, that shade of grey is changing based on externalities, whether it's your competitors, your customers, market forces, geopolitical issues or whatever it might be. These are rapidly expanding of more recent times. But I think from an organisational perspective, once you get 
a group that is tasked with making a decision you know, about a business strategy or setting in place a business plan. Once you get them turned around to it not being such a directional decision around this option, this option, or this option, but it's more a movement towards a goal and constantly assessing the risk as you go, then you tend to get very different outcomes. And in order to have an effective functioning team in that environment, you absolutely need that diversity of input. You need diversity of experience because people bring very different experiential and and learned lessons and learned observations about what might occur or what they've seen occur in the past into that dialogue. But you also then need that diversity of thought. And that comes from any myriad of areas, someone's role, their upbringing, their education, the environment in which they operate today or have operated in the past. And you need those two things to come together effectively and work in sympathy with each other in order to effectively manage and move through what is inherently a very risky environment. And, you know, from a corporate perspective, the bigger the dollar figures or the the bigger the potential win or loss, the higher the risk quotient. And so, therefore, ultimately, the, the higher the need for that very strong diversity of thinking at the table as you're making those decisions and guiding the strategy in order to make sure that you get the best outcome. I'd like to just pull that thread of risk that Rob's put on the table there. And I think it comes back to sort of one of my comments earlier about how risk appetite impacts the ability for defense industry and defense to move forward towards the best capability possible. It's actually quite a big issue in that traditionally through acquisition, a project or a program will do everything they can to de-risk that project and that program against schedule and against cost. And companies will go down a similar path. Well, that is an absolute recipe to ensure that innovation doesn't continually get driven into the process as you go forward, because that means that you're not going to be willing to fail. And through failure, you get a lot of less. If you're an organization that is designing bespoke radars, bespoke capabilities that do not currently exist and are doing that through fundamentally R&D at some point, and then continually evolving that design so that when the design is complete and it's manufactured, it's actually at the front end of the capability cycle still. That's quite a different challenge to what has been the norm to date. And I think if I had one observation across it and the need for diversity, it's not just diversity in terms of gender, race, culture. It's diversity and getting people back on the same page as to what it really means to be able to field modern-day systems that are up-to-date and capable of being updated at a pace that keeps up with the amount of change that's actually happening in the battlefield. That in itself requires a diverse level of thought and an acceptance of a diverse way of doing business that I think we still in Australia and across, I would argue, almost all nations have a ways to go because if we don't, I don't think we're going to be in a situation where we do keep on the front of the curve as we move forward. I think that's a nice segue, Jonathan, to some of the work with CEA. Like you've talked about when you're bringing research to life, there's a different kind of feeling of like testing things and failure and bringing to global markets and the commercial, I guess, the gene and genetics around that, which are particularly if you're working with providing tools to defence markets. As a counterpoint discussion, Obviously, it's a very successful company that employs many people and has export markets all over the world. But like you said, you're talking about technologies that haven't been tested yet. How do you balance that risk and build a successful, long-lasting company? Well, I think you build it 
through relationships. And, and I know that sounds really trite, but it isn't. It's also, you build it through getting people to understand what it is and why it is you're doing something different than the way everybody else does it. And that is actually an enormously challenging thing to achieve. You also build it through willpower. You know, if I look to have the founder, if he was sitting here across from me, that would be the first thing he'd say to me. It's, it's just an absolute firm belief that what you're doing is correct, that it's the best thing for defense, that it's the best way to bring a new capability forward, and this is how we're going to do it. But by the same token, you build it on the back of putting good things out there and that they work. And you make that happen on the back of a lot of smart people from diverse backgrounds bringing all their good ideas into the space. And then the challenge is, where do you get them from? And I suspect we'll get to that shortly. The challenges of actually finding and achieving the right level of diversity and balance. I would argue in my time at CEA and even towards my time as chief of staff within Navy, one of the most challenging aspects of getting to the right place, not because we had to or want to, but because we need to, is finding new and innovative ways to get the people through the door. I think that would be my biggest focus going forward here is how do we continue to build the workforce to the level that we need to with a young, diverse group of people that have an understanding of the commitment that's required to get it done. I'd like to come back to skills in a minute because I think it's really, it is incredibly important discussion being had right across the country at the moment and many countries in fact. Rob, but you would see the same sort of dynamic that Jonathan's talking about in terms of the nexus between critical emerging technologies, relationship, appetite for risk and testing, people understanding why it is to push through similar themes when you're talking to customers and the application of these techs? Yeah, definitely, Corey. You know, it, it's, so firstly, this is not a new challenge for large corporations. How do you fuel innovation? How do you feed ideas and create an environment where ideas can be brought forward? so that they can be developed and hopefully create a competitive advantage. And I think the interesting dynamic is when we step back and think about that from a corporation's perspective, ideas invariably come from people, comes from the people. And if we continually talk about the fact that people are our strongest asset, are our best asset in any organisation, then it, it beholds to then create an environment where you can extract the very best of them those ideas, that innovation that will fuel competitive uh, advantage or strategic development. Other parts of the organisation, however, and we see this through the lens of our customers a lot, is we tend to build processes or some organisations can build processes and procedures to really abstract this idea of ideas, free thinking and thoughts. A great example of that is the modern procurement organisation with any corporation, which is really by and large, it's built to achieve economic advantage and benefits for the organisation, but it's also has systems and structures to remove that relationship element from uh, much of the decision-making. Now, we know ultimately that as much as we try and build software and systems and policies and processes and procedures, we know ultimately that the relationship that one person has with someone else or that one team has with another team or the trust that a customer puts in you because of a relationship and a bank that has been built up over numerous years of delivering service through both good times and bad times. We know that that holds currency and we know that that holds value and it cannot be discounted. In some cases, it's the most valuable aspect of a relationship, that trust that exists between a provider and the consumer of that service. 
And so organizations have this push and pull factor around we want to generate ideas, we want to fuel innovation for our own benefit, but then at the same time, how do we flip the coin and think about our suppliers and our partners as part of that innovation journey as well? And I think that's where the secret sauce really is. Once you start thinking about your ecosystem, not as one-way traffic or as a binary transaction-based relationship, but as part of them being interwoven into the very fabric of how you innovate, how you develop products, how you develop capability, how you think about market strategy, then you can really start to see a force multiplier and a huge strategic advantage for organizations, particularly in the technology sector where you know it's highly complex, tends to be very capital heavy, in particular the R&D sector of it, and ultimately not everyone can do everything. So your reliance on technology eco-partners and imports from other suppliers is critical. More so now than ever, we're seeing it manifest in the chip shortage around the world and that chip shortage flowing all the way through the technology value chain at the moment. It shows not just the fragility, but just how intertwined these partnerships and these relationships are. Yeah, I mean, we could we could probably do a whole podcast on the fragility of the supply chain right now and how that's manifesting itself and challenging the old paradigms of just enough, just in time, all kinds of things. But I think Rob's point's really critical. You really see it in organizations such as ours where it comes down in part to, a well, large part, is what strategic cultural messaging you give your supply chain. And we have a strong view that we try to make our supply chain as much Australian as possible. There are obviously some areas that we will not bring in, period, due to the nature of what we do. But, you know, one of the things that we've always made sure we've, our supply chain understands is that we don't compete our supply chain. Well, that's a really important, seems simple enough to say it. But by saying that, you bring people along for a journey for a long time. And you have to take risk with your supply chain. If you're in advanced manufacturing in Australia, you need to be willing to build that supply chain as part of your organization, your ecosystem, as Rob's characterized. It's a critical activity and it takes a lot of time. You have to be able to make decisions that on the surface may not seem the most cost-effective decision, but what it's about is ensuring the relationship and then by that time, ensuring your suppliers remain viable as you go forward. And if you add on top of that, if you start to put restrictions against all the new technology that's coming forward and all the, the ways to mitigate some of the threats around cyber and things along those lines, a lot of the smaller suppliers in Australia are not well positioned to be able to meet all those demands on their own. And so you need to be willing to turn the lens the other way and say, look, we're here to help you. We're going to support you through this. We're going to bring some of our expertise that we have organically within our organization and take that forward. And I think it's approaches like that that do start to solidify your position in the market going forward. You become known as an organization that can be trusted both within the supply chain, but will also be seen to be doing the right thing going forward, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but it just makes sense from a business perspective in terms of long-term viability. Really fascinating. People talk about organization DNA, et cetera. We talk about it, but when you explain it like that with the businesses specific on that kind of edge of tech and national significance, et cetera, it puts it into a whole new focus. I'm going to just wind up here. We touched on it earlier, the skills challenge. We've talked about young people. We've talked about, you know, my Facebook, I have lots of ads for defense in there and it's painted as this, you know, exciting opportunity to build 
you know, a career in this sort of challenging environment where you'll build specialized skills. And everything we've talked about has been exactly how important that is. But there's a lot of other places where people might be, you know, if we're talking about broadening the pool of where we would be attracting skills from. And I know that you're not speaking either of you on behalf of defense, but is there a shift in the way we think about recruitment and the way that people think about career pathways? I would come back, Corey, to what I said at the very start, which was this notion in the in the world of frictionless global trade where in order to compete and be successful, you need everyone on the field. And so I think that is true today and will remain so into the future as well. When we think about what the workforce looked like here in Australia, when we think about so that traditional workforce a generation ago, how it operated, what the function and mechanics of that workforce was, and we think about what it is today and what it will be in the future, we know with great certainty that it will look nothing like it did in the past uh, and it will continue to change and morph. It will continue to change and morph from an employment opportunity perspective. And what we mean by that is when you look at young people entering the workforce, particularly if they're young and they're highly skilled, they are highly mobile. They are highly mobile in those early years of their career because that's all about skill aggregation and experience aggregation. And so they're looking to build their skill set, you know, the tools they have in their toolbox, and they're looking to build their experience, particularly in the technology sector, because they know that that's what's going to differentiate them and create opportunity for advancement and economic prosperity when they get into that middle part of their career. I think as well we know that the, the face of employment and what we define as work in this country has changed dramatically over the last two years. Uh, you know, We think about it this way. You could think about it this way in the sense that when the pandemic hit, people had to make a really significant life change because there was no option. They simply had to change the way that they worked, lived and played because there was no option. We're at the point now with the pandemic starting to wane into sort of an endemic stage where organisations are really grappling with, well, actually what we're asking people to do now is change a habit that they've established over the last two years and they don't necessarily have to. And so it's a very different dynamic as to where we're at now in uh, engaging with employees in this country versus where we were two years ago. And treating them as being the same, oh, well, when the pandemic started, everyone worked from home now, it's over, everyone come back to the office. That's just not the way to approach it. Uh, there needs to be far more nuance, far more shades of grey in the way that we think about engaging the workforce into the future. Otherwise, ultimately, you will drive the skills that we need to prosper out of the workforce or out of the industry. And Australia can ill afford that. Yeah, I think... It's a conversation that's been had for well, as long as I was in uniform, as long as I've been in the Navy. And I, I take all Rob's points online about the pandemic and COVID and the impact that that's had. And I, and I agree that saying that we're just going to go back, well, was foolish and in part unnecessary, which I think is the point. I also think we need to be careful of characterizing how you handle the problem in some sort of generic general way. And I, I'm not suggesting anybody's doing that, but I'll give you an example. So if you look at, at CEA, we design, manufacture, warehouses, all the rest of it. Clearly, depending on what portion of that workforce you comprise, depends on the level of flexibility that can be afforded you in terms of where you can and can't work. And I realize that's a, that's a no-brainer for many when you say it until you start to realize the impacts of that statement where you have various areas of the organization, if you're a vertically integrated manufacturer, that just don't have 
the level of flexibility. So there is no one size fits all. Similarly, if you look at, and I'll stick to what I know to a degree in terms of defense, if you look at ships and navies, the deployed aspects of being in the Navy and the necessity for that, the reality still is ships have people in them and they need to go to sea. And in many cases, they need to do that for extended periods of time. I reflect back on 1986, which sounds like it wasn't that long ago when I think about it, but I know when I say it, it's ages ago. We didn't think about it. We didn't have the access, first of all, to even understand what it was we were signing up for. We didn't have all the information that's constantly connected to everybody now. And when you did it, you just sort of did stuff. I I know for a fact that the people in their 17s, 18s, 19s now, my children, etc., they give this stuff far more thought and consideration than I ever had. Now, maybe that's a reflection on me, but fundamentally, I think it's actually a generational issue. And it's a real challenge for those areas of the defense force that have to deploy for long periods of time. Finding those young people, the extended training pipeline that's involved, it takes four years at a minimum to train the most junior of naval warfare officers. Those are long pipelines, lots of taxpayer investment, lots of people investment that you then want to hold on to for a period of time. And I frankly have no idea how to crack that particular challenge. I would have loved to have been able to be clever enough to figure that out whilst I was in uniform. And here at CEA, the way you crack that challenge in terms of getting the right people is increasingly uh, we're involved in high schools. You know, we are literally starting to deal with people and young men and women when they're in high school or we're at the CITs deliberately influencing the program within the CITs at the trades and apprenticeship level to ensure that we get a workforce at the earliest stages that we can. So there's a number of ways of getting it, but I think to Rob's point, the only way to crack it is you've got to become very involved right from the very outset with all the people that you would like to see in your organization as early as possible. And then when they're in there, try to be good enough a listener to get to the right balance and support people on an individual basis. Because I just don't think a generic one size fits all or even something that's 80% that is ever going to get you where you need to get to. Jonathan Sadlier and Rob LaBusk, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion and uh, I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kari. We hope you enjoyed this special CounterPoint Conversations podcast by Verizon. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit verizon.com.